get them in here to take care of it, see what's going on, so that next week it can be nice and cool as God intended it to be in church. Uh, when soldiers deploy for training or for combat, there's a lot of preparation that takes place, a lot of things they have to, to kind of get ready and get set in order to go. And part of the preparation is in deciding what equipment needs to be taken. Summer missions require different equipment than winter missions. Missions in the desert require different equipment than missions in the jungle. Missions where you assault someone require different missions or different equipment than when you're defending against an assault. And you get the idea. However, despite all the different circumstances that require different kinds of equipment, there are still some essentials. Right? There are some pieces of equipment that whether it's summer or winter, whether you're in the desert or the jungle, whether you're assaulting or defending, you've got to have these things. And typically this gear is so essential, it's difficult, if not impossible, to complete any mission without it. As we talk about trying to move forward following Jesus, there are going to be loads of preparations we're going to have to make along the way. And part of these preparations will be in determining what we need so we can move forward following Jesus, where He is leading us. Because something we have to realize is, Jesus is going to call us all forward in different ways. The way He will call me forward is going to be different largely than the way He's going to call you forward. The way He'll call one family forward will be different than the way He calls another family forward. And so there is a lot of what is Jesus calling me to do? What is it I need to do? What does our family need to do? That will be specific to us as individuals and as families. However, despite all of the differences that we have in the ways that God would lead us, there are going to be some essentials. Right? Some, some essentials we must have so we can move forward following Jesus. That regardless of who we are or where we are in our walk with Christ, what He's calling us or our families to do, these things must be present in our life. And without these essentials being in our life, it will be difficult, if not impossible, for us to move forward following Jesus. So turn in your Bible to Joshua 5, verses 1 through 12 is what we're going to look at today. And we're going to see what some of these essentials are. Uh, Joshua 5, verses 1 through 12. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Joshua 5, and it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of the Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted, neither was their spirit in, in them anymore, because of the children of the Lord. At that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, Make these sharp knives, and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All that the people, all the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised, but the people that were born in the wilderness by way, by the way as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord unto whom the Lord sware He would not show them the land which the Lord sware unto their fathers that He would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children whom He raised up in their stead them Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way. And it came to pass... When they had done circumcising all the people, they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole. 
And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes, parched corn, and the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten the corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The title of the message this morning is Essentials to Moving Forward. Essentials for Moving Forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we need you today to guide us, to help us, to listen to you, to follow you, to move forward. God, there are varying ways you're going to call us forward, things you're going to call one person to do, one family to do, you're not calling another. And Lord, we understand that we're going to be called in different ways and there are those essentials, those preparations that must be made for us as individuals. Yet at the same time, Father, there are just some things that are common to all of us as disciples of Jesus, things we must have prepared, things we must be doing if we are to move forward, regardless of how you're calling us to move forward. And Lord, as we look at this passage today, open our minds and our hearts to what you have for us. Challenge us where we need challenging. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. And convict us where we need convicting. Father, we want to move forward and be all that you'd have us to be and do all that you'd have us to do. Lord, I know that I, as an individual, I I want to move forward following Jesus. I want to be who you want me to be. I long for our church to move forward, be able to better reach our community for Christ. So God, we're here today. We're submitted to you. We open our ears to you. We, We surrender this time to you. Guard against distractions. The enemy would love nothing more to come along and steal, kill, and destroy, to snatch the good seed out of our hearts so it would bear no fruit in our lives. Give him no place today. Keep him out. Let your presence and your glory be so strong in here. The enemy just could not come in and cause any sort of distractions at all. Fill me with your spirit and guide me. My speech and preaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but it would be in demonstration of your spirit and your power so people's faith would stand not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Have your way in all things. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So Israel has crossed over the Jordan River. And they set up camp. They built the memorial. God told them to build about what God had done in parting the Jordan. And then they wait. And as they wait, further orders from God come. And the orders are this. All the men of Israel are now to be circumcised. Because it hasn't been done to anyone since they left Egypt. What an instruction. What a time to correct this particular issue. Now despite what the command was, and despite where they were when the command was given, there doesn't seem from the text to be any sort of hesitation on their part to obey God. They immediately did what God commanded them to do. And they waited painfully, I'm sure, to heal And once they were better, they then celebrated the Passover. All in all, really great sports, if you ask me. Now, everything they did in this chapter was an act of devotion to God. And that's the essential. That was the essential if they were going to move forward and conquer the land and inherit what God had promised them. They must be devoted 
to God. And it's the same for us. Devotion to God is the essential to moving forward. Devotion to God is the essential to moving forward. If we are not devoted to God, nothing else matters. We cannot move forward without being devoted to God. And devotion to God in this passage is seen in four ways. Right. So if we are going to move forward following Jesus, then our devo- we must be devoted to God and this devotion is going to be seen in four ways. One, consecration to God. Right. Circumcision was, was the sign of their covenant with God. It was the sign of their consecration to God. It was to be done on the eighth day of life for Jewish boys. The parents of these men who were now going to take the land had not done it. Right? And this was either, uh, and so technically they were, well, they were uncircumcised, and technically they weren't even kind of a part of the, the people of God. They were not a part of God's covenant, and they had not been consecrated to God. Before they could move forward any further, They had to consecrate themselves to the Lord and reaffirm their covenant with Him. Now, while circumcision is not the sign of our covenant with God, it remains a consistent image of consecration to God. However, rather than a physical circumcision, what we're called on is a spiritual one. So using the imagery of circumcision, there are at least four characteristics of consecration to God. One is submission to God. So in Deuteronomy it says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Now stiff-necked pictures an unwillingness to bow. Right? If If a king meets a subject, what does the subject do? Why? They are showing their submission to their Lord, to their King. A stiff neck is an unwillingness to bow the neck. Unwillingness to submit to God's rule, God's reign, and God's will for our lives. It would be wonderful for us to say, we will always want to do what God calls us to do. But we all know, I mean, we know from Scripture because we see in Scripture the people of God often wrestle with what God wants them to do. But we know even from our own lives. All of us have had times where God has said, Thou shalt, and we're like, Ah, I really don't want to. Or God has said, Thou shalt not, and we've said, Oh, I really do want to. So what do we do in those times? Well, in those times, if we're committed to God, devoted to God, consecrated to God... We will submit to God. And I think this is one of the keys to submission. It's really not submission unless we don't want to do it. Right? If I want to do it, I love to do it, it's my favorite thing, that's not submission. That's just doing what I want to do. But in that moment, when God says, thou shalt, and I say, I I don't want to shout, what do we do? Who rules? Who reigns? Who bows the neck in that moment? If we are consecrated to God, we do. We bow the neck. We submit to God and we do what He wants us to do even in that moment when we don't want to. So first, submission to God. Secondly, praise from God. 
For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision of that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Whose praise is not of men, but of God, implies or outright means a willingness to anger people in order to please God. When we are consecrated to God, our greatest desire is to hear these words from our Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now the reality is, I cannot seek the praise of people and the praise of God at the same time. I cannot live to hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and live to please my co-workers at the same time. Right? I have to choose one or the other. Because living to please God will, in multiple ways, at multiple times, put us at odds with the people in the world around us. Who do we seek to please? Listen to something I read Friday about the Scottish reformer John Knox. It says, most notably, what inspired the pastors, and perhaps more than any other characteristic in John Knox, was that he did not fear men because he feared God. He was a man willing to offend men because he was unwilling to offend God. Now that is a statement about someone who is consecrated to God. Are you, am I, are we willing to offend people because we are unwilling to offend God? Now, here's the thing. Quickly, we want to rush and say, yeah, I ain't afraid of nobody. I don't care what people think. But is it true? Is it really true that we are unafraid to offend people because we don't want to offend God? And if so, let me ask. Do we faithfully share the gospel? I mean, our community is filled with unbelievers. We all encounter lost people all the time in our lives. Do we talk to them about the fact they have sinned against a holy God? They are under the wrath of God. Unless they repent of those sins, believe in Jesus Christ, they will go to hell for all of eternity. Do we do that? And if not, why not? Isn't it true? That one of the most common reasons we give as to why we won't share the gospel with lost people is we don't want to make them mad. And if we are trying to keep from making them mad, are we living to please people or are we living to please God? Think about it also along these lines. Do we clearly articulate what Scripture says about unpopular subjects? Sexuality. Morality. Abortion, the uniqueness of Christ for salvation, hell and the reality people who don't believe in Jesus go there, the validity or lack of validity of other religions or any number of deeply unpopular but biblically clear issues. When those issues come up and we're questioned, how do we answer Do we give a solid biblical answer, this is what the Bible says, or do we mumble under our breath and try to hustle away so we don't have to get caught up in the discussion? Do we say, well, I don't know, I guess everybody has to make a decision for themselves. And if we do, why do we do it that way? 
Isn't it because we don't want to make people mad? And if we avoid unpopular subjects, which the Bible is clear on, so we don't make people angry, are we living to please people or are we living to please God? Consecration to God is seeking praise from God. Even when seeking this praise angers the people around us. Third, confidence in God. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh means we understand we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a part of consecration to God is understanding if God had not saved us through faith in Jesus, then we would not be saved. Consecration to God. Part of that is being confident God saved us through faith in Jesus and we have no confidence in our morality. Now, this isn't to say morality is important, is unimportant. It is. But when I have no confidence in the flesh and I'm confident in God, what I say is I may be a moral person, but I'm not saved because of my morality. I understand that morality does not save me. Right? If I have confidence in God and no confidence in the flesh, I understand that my baptism didn't save me. Again, Baptism is an important part of being a believer. Those who repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ, should be baptized by immersion soon after being saved. However, being dunked in the water does not save us. Consecration to God is saying, I was baptized because Jesus saved me, but that baptism was just a testimony of what God did in saving me. It's not what has saved me. Part of being confident in God is understanding that our nationality does not save us. Right? That, that my being an American has no more to do with my salvation than with someone being a Russian has to do with their salvation. Nationality in the kingdom of God is of no importance. I, I'm not saying I'm saved because I'm an American. No, I'm saved because Jesus Christ has saved me. It means having no confidence in our family for salvation. I am very glad I was raised in a godly Christian home with parents who loved Jesus and were devoted to Jesus and faithful examples of what it means to follow Him. But their life did not save me. Their commitment to Christ did not save me. Their being godly people for years and years and years is not what saved me. I had to repent. I had to believe. I had to embrace Christ. So we can't say, my, I'm saved because mom and dad are Christians. No, I'm saved because I've repented and believed in Jesus. Consecration to God finds confidence for salvation in God and God alone. Not in anything we do. No confidence in our flesh. And then, fourthly, holiness unto God. In whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh is holiness. And here's a reality. No one can legitimately call themselves consecrated to God 
who ignores the moral standards of God. No one who ignores the moral standards of God can in any way call themselves consecrated to God. I mean, think about the other things we've talked about. Submission to God. Am I submitted to God if I'm ignoring the moral commands of God? No. Praise from God. Am I living to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if I'm ignoring the moral commands of God? No. Confidence in God. Scripture gives multiple lists of sins and follows that up by saying, those who do such things have no part in the kingdom of God. Can I have confidence from God if I ignore the moral commands from God and live in ways, Scripture says, those who do such things have no part in the kingdom of God. No, absolutely not. We cannot in any way consider ourselves to be consecrated to God while ignoring the moral commands of God. So are you, am I, are we consecrated to God? We must be. If we're going to move forward following to Jesus. Because devotion to Jesus is the essential to moving forward. Devotion to Jesus is seen in being consecrated to God. Secondly, we consecration to God, but also dependence on God. God waited to call on them to renew their covenant through circumcision until they crossed the Jordan River. Joshua 4.19 tells us that they were in the border of Jericho. So they are in enemy territory. Joshua 5.1 tells us that all of the kings around knew they were there. So this was a time in which what would make the most sense naturally would be for the soldiers to be strong and sharp and not in pain and able to fight because the enemy could swoop in upon them at any time. And yet it is in this time where they are vulnerable. They are in this new land. All of this is going on. God says now be circumcised. How long does it take a grown man to recover from circumcision? Well, according to Genesis 34 verses 24 and 25, multiple days. If you're familiar with the story, a boy named Shechem, he rapes Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And then Shechem's family comes to Jacob's family and is like, we want to marry her. I think he's in love with her. Why don't you marry and join with us? And Jacob's sons, they say, oh no, we can't do that. You're not circumcised. You'll have to be circumcised. And if you're circumcised, all the men in your land are circumcised, then we'll be married and we'll join with you. So Shechem's family, they go back and they say, hey, I think we ought to do this. And they say, okay, let's do it. And so all of the men in that area are circumcised. And three days later, the Bible says, while they were still in pain, Reuben and Gad, I believe, go into the area and slaughter all the men. Right? So in three days, they are still so much in pain that they cannot defend themselves from two guys walking through with a sword Jabbing them. That's the condition they're in right here. That's how sore, how vulnerable they are in enemy territory with all the kings knowing where they are. Helpless, almost, unbelievably sore and in pain. Why would God 
wait until now to call them to demonstrate their consecration to Him through circumcision. To teach them. They must depend on Him. Their victory in the following days will not be by their might nor by their strength, but by God who works on their behalf. They must know God and God alone will be the source of their victory. As we seek to move forward following, following Jesus, we too will be called to times of testing where God calls on us to do what does not make sense to us. When we know this is what God is leading, our natural minds will say, that is crazy. This is not, this just can't be what makes sense. This can't be what's right. And yet it is. And we'll be called upon in that time to demonstrate our devotion and our consecration to Him by depending on Him to do whatever it is He's calling on us to do. What this passage and others like it teach us is God is more than worthy of our trust. So many examples. Let me just give you a couple. Think about Noah. Called to build an ark. Now from what we know, there were no big boats like that that had been built at that time. What God is calling on Noah to build is something that is far beyond anything he's ever seen or understood. He's calling upon him to build something larger than probably what he could build in the natural. He had never seen anything like that. The rain, the floods that are coming, they've never seen rain and floods according to most commentators. And they're supposed to put two of every kind of animal on the ark. How is Noah going to do that? They don't all live in a zoo right outside his little community. What is Noah to do? Nothing God has said makes sense. So what does Noah do? Noah builds the ark. He spends years and years hammering away, going, well, this will be interesting. Depending on God to bring the animals. Depending on God to seal the boat up properly. Depending on God to protect them when the rains come and the floods wash over the land. And God did it. We can think about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think, now i tell you what, I think... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's a great story for our modern times. Nebuchadnezzar builds an idol and demands, commands, everybody bow to my idol. And if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the flaming fiery furnace. There you will die. And that's, that's, a, that's a very much our culture right now. There is an idol in our culture and the world is saying, bow before it or suffer the consequences. What are we going to do? What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They didn't bow. They stood up. They stood out in a, a world where everybody else was bowing down and they were standing up. And people told on them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, what is this I hear? I'm going to give you one more chance. And I'm going to play the music and you're going to bow down. And if you don't, I'm going to toss you in the fire. And there is no God that can save you from my hand. And they said, oh God, he can save us. But if not, we're still not bowing down to you. God was worthy of their trust. 
They depended upon God. We could look at Daniel in the lion's den, Elijah on Mount Carmel, and even in the days following. The Bible over and over again gives us examples of God taking care of His people, showing He is worthy of their trust in times when what they're doing is beyond them. And this is a a reality to moving forward following Jesus. Moving forward following Jesus always takes us out of our comfort zones. It always takes us beyond our natural abilities. It always takes us to the place where if God does not come through, everything will fall apart. God takes us to walk into the river and stand in the midst of it before He does anything. And He does this intentionally. This is not something where God is like, oh, I didn't realize it was like that. No, God does this intentionally. He wants us to learn that the victory is not ours but His. The battle is not ours but His. That it's with His power, with His might. If He only leads us to where we're comfortable, if He only called on us to do what we could naturally do, why do we need God? God will always lead us far beyond our natural capabilities so we will learn to depend upon Him. Devotion to God is the essential to moving forward. And devotion to God is seen in absolute dependence on God. Thirdly, assurance from God. So consecration to God, dependence on God, assurance from God. If you look at verse 8, God says He has rolled back, or verse 9, the reproach of Egypt. Now the reproach of Egypt is an interesting phrase and it seems from the passage to refer to two particular issues. One is the fact they weren't circumcised. Now at best, these people not being circumcised was just extreme negligence on the part of their parents. And at worst, it was a defiant act of disobedience on the part of their parents because circumcision wasn't new. God instituted circumcision as the sign of His covenant with the people back in Abraham's day. Hundreds of years, circumcision had been the sign of their covenant with God. And yet they had not done it. And it's referenced here. Two other issues would be basically what I would say their sins. right? The sins of the people that they had brought with them out of Egypt. And there are two particular ones that are referenced here. Right? Well, I've lost my place. Anyway, there's two that are referenced here. One is the golden idol, the golden calf. The other is the unwillingness to enter the promised land. Those are both referenced in the passage. And it was just a picture. The people still had the sins of Egypt in their hearts and in their lives. And it was a hindrance. It was holding them back. So God now has rolled this reproach away. In fact, the place is going to be called Gilgal, which means rolled. The point is, their past no longer matters. They are now part of God's covenant, and the sin of Egypt has been forever rolled away. They had assurance from God these things were gone and would not be a hindrance to what He wanted to do in them, through them, or for them. Now, sadly, many devoted disciples of Jesus live under the reproach of Egypt in their lives. The shame, 
the guilt and the weight of past sins holds them back and hinders them from moving forward. And if this is you, you need assurance from God. He has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. That's why it's good to know verses like Psalm 103 and 12 as far as the east is from the west. So far has He removed our transgressions from us. We, we need to know verses like Isaiah 43 and 25. I, even I am He that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Here's why this is important. Satan is an accuser. And his weapon is condemnation. And Satan wields the weapon of condemnation Often by reminding us of our past failures. Things God has forgiven us for. He will accuse us of our sin. He will accuse us of issues we currently struggle with. He will accuse us of stuff we haven't even done but make us think we have. He will make us think we're worthless. He will tell us and convince us Jesus has no use for us. He will try to convince us Jesus won't forgive us. He will attack us by accusing us and making us feel condemned despite the salvation and righteousness we have received from Jesus. Condemnation is one of Satan's greatest weapons. Just keep in mind, Satan doesn't necessarily have to lead us into deep, dark sin to win. Right? Satan, for an unbeliever, Satan's goal is to keep them from Jesus. And however he can do that, he will. Now once we've come to Christ and we're saved, Satan can't take us out of God's hand. He can't undo what Christ has done on our behalf. But what he can do is stop us from faithfully following Jesus. That's his goal in your life and mine. And if He can do that by leading us down the path of deep, dark sin, then He will absolutely do that, and that's fine with Him. But if He can't lead us down the path of deep, dark sin, but He can lead us to the place where we feel so condemned, we feel so condemned by who we've been and what we've done, that we don't feel we can move forward following Jesus. Who am I to try to serve the Lord? And we kind of just coast. And we just sort of skate along and don't try to push forward for Jesus. He still counts that as a win. Because all He needs to do is keep us from moving forward following Jesus. And any way He can do that is a win in His book. Condemnation is a powerful tool in the hands of the enemy of our souls. Satan is a liar. And he will wield condemnation in a way, if he can, that makes us think it is conviction from the Lord. And he'll make us think, this is God pressing on you with these feelings of worthlessness. This is God saying to you, you're no good. This is God telling you how awful you are. And if we believe his lie, and we think God is the one telling us we're worthless, we're dirty sinners. We are unforgivable and unusable. We will just sit down and we will give up. And He wins a tremendous victory in our lives. When these accusations come, we must have assurance from God. We must have assurance from God. He has rolled back the reproach of Egypt. And there is no condemnation for us 
and that God remembers our sins no more. So, consecration to God, dependence on God, assurance from God, and then openness for God. In verse 10 through 12, everything is changing for them. Now they're in the promised land. They're, they're about to cease to be wanderers and nomads. Instead, they're going to have real houses and they're going to own real land and they're going to cultivate and live as people in a land as opposed to wanderers and nomads. Verse 12, it tells us the manna is going to stop falling. And now God is going to provide for them in a new way. The way God is going to work in them and through them and for them is different than the way He's worked in them and through them and for them in the past. Their world and everything they know is about to change drastically. And if they are not open for God to work in them and through them and for them in the new ways God wants to work in them and through them and for them, they will cease to go forward and they will miss out on all God has for them. Truth of the matter is what God has for them in the future, what God has for them as they move forward is better than what they're leaving behind. And this is the way God works in us today. Everything about moving forward following Jesus requires us to be open for God to work in us and through us and for us in new ways. This has always been God's way. God has always called His people forward. And what He calls us forward to is always better than what we're leaving behind. Let me show you an example of this from the Old Testament. In Habakkuk, or I'm sorry, Haggai. The days of Ezra, the people are rebuilding the temple. And it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's army. And in the process of rebuilding, the people get discouraged and they stop. So God sends a couple of prophets, one of them Haggai, with a message to encourage them. Haggai chapter 2 is a good part of his message. And verses 3 and 9 are kind of the key. Verse 3 says, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you now see it? Is it now in your eyes in comparison to nothing? Those who had seen the original temple, they were discouraged at what was going on with the new temple. They felt the new temple was nothing in comparison to what it had been back in in their day when they were younger. You can only imagine the stories they were telling about the glory days back in our day. Why, when we were younger, things were different. On and on it must have gone. But God has another message. The glory of the latter half shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. But God says the glory of the new temple will be greater than the glory of the old. Now imagine this was shocking to some and wonderful to others. It was shocking to those who were bemoaning the way it used to be. How could this newfangled temple be greater than the temple of their youth? I mean, Solomon, one of the greatest kings of Israel, had built the old temple. There's no way these kids today could build anything. Even as good, much less with the glory would be greater. At the same time, I imagine this was great news to these who were laboring to build the temple. 
Because if it wasn't hard enough to try to build, and have all, all these people griping about the way it used to be and what it was like and it's not as good and how we miss the old days. And yet God says to them, what you're going to do, I'm going to work through in greater ways than what was in the old house. Can you imagine the good news to them? God was pleased with what they were doing. God was going to bless it in mighty ways. What God was going to do in them and through them and for them wasn't in any way inferior to what God had done in the past. And God's message to us, to them, is clear. Let go of the past and be open to what God will do in us and through us and for us in the future. If we are not open to new ways of God working in our lives, in our families, in our church, we will cease to move forward. We will miss all that God wants to do. The glory of the new temple would only be seen if they moved forward and kept going. God has given great promises for us in our future, for our families in our future, for our church in our future, but it is forward. It's not back. It's not even here. It's forward. And we celebrate the past. We recognize who God is and what God has done, but we don't cling to the former glory. We look to what God is going to do. In us and through us and for us. Devotion to God is the essential to moving forward. But we cannot move forward. Cannot move forward. If we're not open to God working in us and through us and for us in new ways. So as we close today, I want to ask you. Are you consecrated to God? Does your life reveal consecration to God? Do you depend on God? Are you ready to move beyond your comfort zone? Ready to move to a place where only God can ensure what you're doing succeeds? Are you receiving assurance from God? Are you certain? The reproach of Egypt has been rolled away from your life and there is no condemnation for you. Are you open to God working in you and through you and for you in new ways? Moving forward, following Jesus absolutely demands we be open to this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we need you to guide us in our life, to search us and try us, help us to see if in any way we aren't devoted to you as we should be. Father, these are all hard things. I mean, none of them are particularly easy to live, to do. But we want to be consecrated to you, Father, above all else. Above all else, we want to 
be devoted to you. We want to depend upon you, Father. The word says that through our God we will do valiantly. And we want to do valiantly through you, God. We don't want to live weak, sissified Christian lives. But to be bold, active, adventurous disciples for Christ. We want assurance from you, Lord, because the enemy is active. And there is much least in my past, for Him to accuse. Drive home in our hearts that You think upon our sins no more. And there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Make us open to whatever new ways You want to work in us and through us and for us. Change is hard. New is scary. But we can't stay in the past and we can't stay where we are. We have to move forward. Show us any ways our lives do not demonstrate devotion to You. Bring deep, hard, abiding conviction. Make us unable to sleep at night because of it. And lead us to a place of genuine repentance. We ask in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen.